You're listening to Living Faith, the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Avon Park, Florida. First Baptist Church is located at 100 North Lake Avenue in Avon Park, Florida. We meet Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m. for Sunday school and 10.45 a.m. for morning worship. Sunday evening services are at 6 p.m. On Wednesday, we meet at 6 p.m. for our weekly Bible study along with our immersive student and children's ministries. Find out more at www.fbcap.net or give us a call at 863-453-6681. You can email us at info at fbcap.net. We'd love to connect with you soon. This is part of our current Sunday morning sermon series, Look and Live, Life and Light in the Gospel of John. that last part that he uh, he said God not only ordains the ends but he ordains the means to the ends and we can rejoice this morning that God uses people like us he uses our prayers he uses our giving he uses people like us all over the world to take his gospel to the nations and so let, let's pause right now even before we enter into the time of preaching to pray uh, just as uh, that was the the president of the international mission board David Platt just as he told us to pray just pray for missions Let me give you a moment just in quiet prayer, and then I'm going to lead us in prayer uh, from one of the Psalms. Let's pray for our missionaries and pray that God would send laborers into the harvest, even now. Hear us this morning, shepherd of Israel, who you lead like a flock. You are enthroned upon the cherubim. Shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come save us. Restore us, O God, and let your face shine that we may be saved. Oh, God, you are the shepherd of your people, and I ask this morning that as we pray, you might hear our prayers and you might hear our calls for restoration, for revival, that you would indeed come shine your face on us so that we might shine your light into the world. We pray for those who are serving all around the world and even in our nation right now as missionaries and church planters all over the world, that your power and your spirit might work through them that you might strengthen them, that you might give them hope if they are in despair, that you might give them joy if they're experiencing sorrow right now, that you would multiply the fruit of their labors, that they might see people saved and come to know Jesus, that they might see people baptized, joining their local church, and that might see those same people becoming lights to their neighbors, to their friends. Now we know that you're doing a work in this world. We might not see it, it might seem dark to us, but we ask today that you would shine your face upon us, that you would shine your light on us, that we might shine your light into the world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me today to John chapter 10. You might want to keep a marker there. I want us to read something also in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 7. Find your place over in John 10, and we're going to read together in Matthew chapter 7. At the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, as we know it from Matthew's Gospel, from Matthew chapter 5 to Matthew 7, we read these words, verse 28 of Matthew 7. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, 
and not as their scribes. He was teaching as one who had authority and not as their scribes. These people that had been listening to Jesus for probably a long time by this point, three chapters worth of reading, and who knows how much we actually have of the complete Sermon on the Mount here, but we know it was in one setting. And at the end of it, something about the way Jesus spoke, something about the way Jesus preached was different than what the people were used to from their scribes and their Pharisees and their religious leaders. And it caused them to say, this man teaches with authority. Notice it doesn't say that this man teaches with more authority or with more power than our scribes and Pharisees. It says that he teaches with authority, not like our scribes and our Pharisees. Now let's go back to John 10, using that kind of as a little precursor to our text today. We're going to start in John chapter 10, and I'm just going to read through verse 21, verses 1 through 21 today. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls out his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him. For they do not know the voice of a stranger. This figure of speech Jesus used, but they did not understand what he was saying. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, to kill and to destroy. I came that they might have life and they may have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon or he is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Let's pray for God's wisdom in our lesson today. God, I ask that your Holy Spirit would be with us. He would open our eyes. He would lead us into green pastures in your word today, that we might be fed and we might be equipped. Teach us now as we listen. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start this morning by offering a little PSA for you, a little public service announcement. Telltale signs of an imposter might be helpful for some of you. If you receive a phone call claiming to be a government agent, an IRS agent, insurance agent, someone claiming to be very official. They sound very official. And they say on the phone to you, you owe a certain amount of money to the government. Did you know that? And you say, no, I didn't know that because you didn't know. And there's a warrant out for your arrest. If you don't pay this sum by such and such a time, they're going to come arrest you. Would you like to pay that over the phone? You know, bells and whistles should be going off already. But then there comes the best part. You say, okay, I'm going to pay the fine over the phone. Go down to the Walgreens. Uh, stay on the phone with me, by the way. Go down to the Walgreens or something. Buy, um, I don't know, $1,500 worth of gift cards. And then I want you to read the, the numbers to me on the phone. 
it's just helpful for us. The government probably will never call you and say that you owe them a fine. They might send you a very important letter in the mail. You might know by the time they're about to arrest you, surely you would have received some kind of warning by now, right? And they're certainly not going to let you pay the fine over the phone in iTunes gift cards. So these should be the, the telltale signs of an imposter. Just a little PSA that also serves as a wonderful introduction and illustration for our lesson today from John 10. Telltale signs of an imposter. Jesus is pitting himself against these false shepherds of Israel. Just disregard the chapter and verse divisions for for a minute here. They They don't do us much good. And the Holy Spirit didn't inspire them except to help us find our place. They they do that. But this is coming right after John 9. And sometimes we seem to think, okay, that's that story and that's that chunk and then this is this chunk. So we have a little blurred vision about what John 10 is all about. But if you read the beginning of John 10, 1, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. You have to picture the setting coming right out of John 9. It's the same story. The blind man has been cast out. The blind man has been questioned. Jesus has come to find the blind man who can now see. And he sees Jesus and he recognizes Jesus and he worships Jesus. And then within earshot of the Pharisees, look at the end of chapter 9. Within earshot of the Pharisees, Jesus says, verse 39, For a judgment I came into the world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And we know that the Pharisees hear it because it says they were near him and they heard him say these things. And they say, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. Now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who, who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. This is kind of the follow-up. This is the sequel to John 9, the blind man. The story of the blind man goes right into the teaching about the good shepherd. Jesus found the man that he had healed. He spoke to the man. The man believed in him. The man confessed him to be the son of man. And then we see Jesus' sharp rebuke of the Pharisees. Today in John 10, as we look through these verses together, I want us just to see three things. For the sake of having an outline, number one, the shepherd's voice. Number two, the shepherd's mission. And number three, the shepherd's flock. These first ten verses, we see the shepherd's voice. As I just said, this scene is not a serene, peaceful scene by the brook and by the river. And there's grass and, and Jesus is picking up some sheep or maybe some small children. And I am, you know, the good shepherd. Now this, is, this comes in the scene of a rebuke. It's harsh. The Pharisees certainly would have understood what Jesus was saying to them. After just calling them blind, just telling them that their guilt remains on them, Jesus says, you're also thieves and robbers. And you're imposters. False shepherds. This is not Jesus' first run-in with the Pharisees, even in the Gospel of John. In John 2, Jesus cleanses the temple. Religious leaders come to him. Who gives you authority to do this? Jesus says, I am the temple. John 5, Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. The Pharisees understood. This man thinks that he's above the Sabbath. He claims his father is God. He claims to be God. Again in John 5, Jesus calls the witnesses against these unbelieving Pharisees. He calls Moses and Abraham and the law, the scriptures, even God his father as witnesses against their unbelief and their hard hearts. John 6, he said, I'm the bread of life. The man said, how is this man going to give us his flesh to eat? How does he say he's the bread of life? Jesus says, you don't belong to me. In John 7, they sought to arrest Jesus. But when they tried, the guards came back and said, Sounds familiar? No one ever spoke like this man. John 8, he says to the religious leaders, your father is the devil and you cannot receive the truth. In John 8, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, and they took up stones to kill him, but he escaped. And now in John 9, having healed the blind man on the Sabbath, they question him about his authority to heal on the Sabbath and he calls them blind and calls them on their sin. We continue to read this rebuke in John 10, and we see what seems to be maybe a parable, the parable of the shepherd. But it's actually an allegory. 
Jesus using a metaphor, several metaphors as we go through this passage. A door, a sheep, a gatekeeper, a shepherd, pasture. Lots of metaphors and lots of imagery in here that Jesus is using to paint one big picture. Now here's the struggle we we get into sometimes with parables, with allegories, with metaphors in the Bible, especially when Jesus is speaking. We try to, you know, get down to every single little symbol and make it into something that it may or may not be. So what we have to do here is ask, what is the big picture? What is Jesus trying to communicate by using this picture instead of trying to figure out the hidden codes behind the gatekeeper and the door and this thing and that thing? Some of those things are there. We're going to talk about a few of them. But by and large, this is just a big picture in which Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees as false shepherds and contrasting himself as the good shepherd against them. It's a big picture. In the ancient Near East, sheep pens would have looked a lot like a 10 to 12 foot tall rock wall or brick wall, a little fortress, as it were, in the middle of a field. And different sheep herds, shepherds, and I said sheep herds, different shepherds, that's where the word comes from, different shepherds with different flocks from different families at nighttime would bring their flocks to this, this sheep pen. And so they would, you know, take them around, letting them eat and watering them during the day, receiving their pay from their families to watch the sheep. And then at night they would take them to this one central pen, kind of like a communal sheep holding station for the night. That would keep them safe in this large wall away from wolves or bears or lions or whatever else might get in to attack the sheep or people. And there was a hired hand, a person that would stand in the one entrance to the fold, to the pen, that would guard the sheep and make sure nothing was getting in and out without it being authorized. That one shepherd that owns that flock would have to come to that gatekeeper, and the gatekeeper would have to admit him in to call his sheep out for himself. And one by one, the shepherds of the different families, the different clans or whatever would come by, and he would go to the gate and call his sheep out. And he would come to the gate and call his sheep out, and so on and so on. Unauthorized people then, whom the gatekeeper did not recognize who had no authority to get the sheep because the sheep did not belong to them, they would obviously have to go in another way. Climbing over the wall, Jesus says. These are thieves and robbers. Sounds like the same word, but Jesus actually uses two Greek words to describe these people. Thieves, meaning those who simply steal for selfish gain, maybe just wanting the lamb for food, wanting the wool, wanting the money. And there's robbers who steal Usually with violence or force. There's violence implied here. Maybe for revenge against another family, they go in and slaughter all their sheep. They don't want nothing from it but revenge, vengeance, to destroy the wealth of someone else. So Jesus uses these two, and he's painting a vivid picture for these Pharisees. They might not understand it yet. And then Jesus talks about this gatekeeper. The gatekeeper does not open to someone whom he does not recognize. He opens only to those who own the sheep. Look at verse 3. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep out by name and leads them out. He's permitted entrance. He has authority to come in and get his sheep. The gatekeeper opens. He calls his sheep. He leads them out. And in this not so subtle rebuke of the Pharisees, Jesus is painting himself as the antithesis of these false shepherds. This figure of speech Jesus used, verse 6, but they didn't understand what he was saying. He's rebuking them as false shepherds, bad shepherds, unauthorized shepherds of Israel, to whom the gatekeeper has not opened. God has not given authority. God has not given right. They're not their sheep. They're nothing but thieves and robbers who want to do nothing but still kill and destroy. And this is not the first time we've heard this rebuke of Israel's religious leaders, their so-called shepherds. If you want, you can turn with me to the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. I'm going to read for a while in Ezekiel 34. Israel here is um, suffering the judgment of God. And Ezekiel, the prophet, is bringing a charge not just against Israel, but against their shepherds, their religious leaders, the ones who are supposed to be guarding their souls, teaching them the law, helping them understand and follow God. We see they're not doing that. Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, 
Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. Surely the Pharisees would have known their scriptures enough to remember this and understand that Jesus is saying, this is, this is you. So they were scattered, verse 5, because there was no shepherd. They became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over the face of the earth with none to search for them or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is serious business. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey, my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves, have not fed my sheep, therefore you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hands and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. It's a scathing, scalding rebuke of these false shepherds. They've scattered the sheep. They've bettered themselves. They've not strengthened the weak. They've not healed the sick. They don't feed the sheep. They've ruled with harshness. They've scattered the sheep. They have not gone out to find the lost sheep purely in it for themselves. And Jesus is painting this vivid picture that this is the Pharisees. These are the religious leaders of Israel, the so-called shepherds of Israel that have fattened themselves at the expense of the sheep, that have taken the law of God that they were supposed to be teachers of and have hoarded it for themselves, putting their man-made traditions and their man-made laws on top of God's own word and lording it over the people harshly insisting on the letter of the law without observing the spirit of the law, which is to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. As we were coming out of Reformation Month a few um, weeks ago, you can't help but see Reformational Roman Catholicism here at the time of the Reformation. The way the word of God was literally chained to the pulpits of the local Roman Catholic Church. And the people, the ordinary people, were not afforded God's word in their own language. Why? Because the religious elite insisted that they were not smart enough and not educated enough to interpret it and read it for themselves. And what happens over time? Same thing, same pattern. Man-made traditions, man-made laws, man-made ceremonies, man-made sacraments take place and precedent over God's word And instead of freeing God's people to be his sheep and to be his people, it captures them and imprisons them and makes them captive, not to God's word, not to God's spirit, but to man-made traditions, man-made laws, man-made religion. God says about the Pharisees, God says about these shepherds in ancient Israel at the time of Ezekiel, this is personal. Notice the pronouns there. These are my sheep. They belong to me. They're God's sheep. They don't belong to you. Mine. Mine. And God says, because you have not fed my sheep, because you've not found my sheep, because you are against my sheep, I am against you. And then God makes this beautiful promise, starting in verse 11 of Ezekiel 34. After this rebuke of these false shepherds, God says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself, I myself will search for the sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. Listen to these pronouns. And I will bring them out from the peoples. And gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of the sheep. You see that? I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I 
will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. What you have failed to do, false shepherds of Israel, you imposters, I will do myself. What you have failed so miserably to do, I will do. And we see Jesus bringing up these images, thieves, robbers, bad shepherds, selfish shepherds. But then there's this other shepherd to whom the gatekeeper opens. He has authority. He comes in. He calls the sheep. He seeks the sheep. They come out. They follow him. He leads them to pasture. And you can't help but see this imagery here that God has promised, I will come and save my sheep. I will seek them out. I will find them. I will save them. I will lead them. I will feed them. And then in verse 23 of Ezekiel 34, this very pointed promise, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. What a wonderful promise. I want you to notice something though. In that first section, who does God say is coming? I am. I myself, my sheep, my flock. I'm coming, I will seek, I will save. Then that last part, we have a weird promise that seems to contradict that one. Now, instead of me coming, I'm gonna send this other person to come. But it's really not a contradiction at all, is it? It's the same promise. And we think of John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was also God. He who is God comes from God to do God's mission in the world. And that's exactly what Ezekiel is saying. I'm coming to you to save you. I'm coming to my sheep, but I'm also sending the shepherd. The shepherd is God, but God sends the shepherd. Now turn to Jeremiah 23, a, little, a few little books to the left. These Old Testament prophets are hard to navigate sometimes. Jeremiah 23, just a few verses here. Again, in the context of judgment, that judgment is coming upon the people. Jeremiah 23, in verse 1, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Woe, that's an that's a announcement of judgment. Woe to you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have, been, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you. For your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Same promise. Judgment is coming. A harsh rebuke for these false shepherds. And then look in verses 3 through 6. Here's the same promise. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them. And I will bring them back to their fold and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them. And they shall fear no more nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. This should sound very familiar to us. By now, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Again, God says, you failed, but I'm coming. I'm coming, but I'm also sending this righteous shepherd king who will rule over and feed and care for and guard my people. And he will be your righteousness. Is it a wonder then that Matthew begins his gospel this way? Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Is it a wonder that Gabriel tells Joseph, You'll call him Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. Contrast this to the thieves and robbers in John 10. They're coming in another way. They've climbed up. Their intentions are selfish, violent. They're in it for themselves. 
And just like these false shepherds in the Old Testament, Jesus says, you're like them. But there's also another prophecy fulfilled here in this setting. Jesus says, you might not understand what I'm talking about. But Jesus is clearly painting himself as that shepherd who has come, according to Ezekiel 34 and Jeremiah 23, from the Lord, as the Lord, to seek and to save his people and to lead them out. Many scholars believe that this sheepfold that Jesus is referring to, this metaphorical fold that he has come to, this pen, is Old Testament Judaism. That Jesus has appeared, as it were, at the gate of the Old Covenant, fulfilling the prophecies that were foretold of the Messiah. He is David's righteous branch. He is the shepherd who is coming. He is the shepherd king. He's the fulfillment of Abraham's promise, the fulfillment of all the covenants in the Old Testament. And he comes to the gate, and the gatekeeper opens for him. We say, what in the world does this mean? And there's lots of opinions. Basically, boil it down to this. The entire Old Covenant system points to Jesus. The entire Old Testament points to him. The law and the prophets come together and point to Jesus as the one who has authority to reign over Israel as their king. Jesus said this in John 5. Again, he calls witnesses. Hey, you sent witnesses to John to ask who I was. John was my witness. You sent people to ask John who I was. The Father is my witness. You sent people to ask John who I was. The scriptures and the law are my witnesses. And ultimately, you say you believe in Moses, but Moses points to me. And if you really understood Moses and the law, you would believe in me. But since you don't, you're clearly blind. The law, the prophets, Moses, Abraham, kind of culminating in John the Baptist, kind of as if he were kind of the last of the old covenant prophets pointing to the Messiah. And John the Baptist says in John 1.29 when he sees Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. A.W. Pink says it this way, Christ answered to all that was written of the Messiah and took the path of God's will in presenting himself to the people. Jesus comes to be baptized and John says, "Why? Well, you should baptize me. But you want me to baptize you? And Jesus says, thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, I did not come to abolish the law or to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. So Jesus comes and this kind of metaphorical figure of the Old Testament law, the prophets, all that had come before Jesus say, prepare the way of the Lord. And they open up the gates and they let the shepherd, the king of glory, come in. Another interesting fact about old um, ancient sheep folds and sheep pens in the Near East You might have caught what I said earlier, that there was a a central sheep pen into which several shepherds would bring their several flocks into one pen for the evening. And the next day, those same several shepherds would come to the gate. The gatekeeper would recognize them. He would open, and they would give a distinctive call. He would say, wait a minute, all the flocks are in there all mingled together. I'm sure many of you have heard by now that these ancient Near Eastern shepherds had particular ways of calling their sheep. I'm not going to demonstrate any of the sounds that I researched this week, but there were particular sounds or clicks or just hands, uh, finger snaps or even calling them by different names they had named them. And these sheep almost miraculously hear the voice of their shepherd and their shepherd only and respond to him and come to him. So that as one shepherd comes, he approaches the gate. He says, hey, my sheep, and they, say, huh? and they come to him, and then he goes away. He says, okay, here's my sheep, and take him out. Another shepherd comes, snaps his fingers a few times. They all turn around, they come, and one after another, the pen is emptied as these shepherds give their different calls. Isn't this what Jesus says in John 10? He says, he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens. Then the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Verse 5, a stranger they will not follow. They will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. He calls his own sheep, but he doesn't just call his sheep. He calls them by name. And he doesn't just call the sheep by name. You see that? He calls out 
his own by name. It's a very simple presupposition here. The sheep were his before he called them. My own hear my voice and they follow me. These sheep were his before he called them. Not the first time we've seen this in John either. Go back, if you will, to John chapter 6. John 6, uh, let's look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Look at verse 44. No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now to verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Simple truths here. God gives the sheep to Jesus. They are Jesus' sheep because the Father in eternity past has given them to him. They will come to Jesus. They will hear the voice of Jesus. They will follow Jesus. And there's this wonderful truth. Jesus will lose none of them. There's an opposite truth. They can't come unless God gives them to the Son. Jesus says, this is why there's one that's going to betray me. This is why many of you don't believe. This is why I told you no one can come unless the Father who sent me draws him. Again, A.W. Pink said, it has thus been through all ages. There is a general call which goes forth to all who hear the gospel. But to each of Christ's sheep, there comes a particular special call. This call is inward and invincible and therefore always effectual. It does exactly what it set out to do. That's why God says in the Old Testament, my word shall not return to me void. It will do exactly what I have sent it out to do. People will hear the voice of the shepherd Jesus in Matthew 9, he calls Matthew. He says, hey, follow me. In Luke 19, we see Jesus calls Zacchaeus. Hey, come down out of there. I'm going to your house. Follow me. John 1, 4, 43, Jesus calls Philip. Then Jesus calls Nathaniel. After he's called Peter, James, and John. And we're about to get to John 11, when there's a particular call that comes as Jesus approaches the tomb of a man that has been dead for four days. Lazarus. And as they roll away the stone from the door, Jesus calls into the dead, dank darkness of that smelly tomb and says, Lazarus, come forth. There's the shepherd calling his sheep by name. Come forth. If you're a believer here this morning, this is your story. This is my story. mingled amongst the flock, unable to hear Jesus, unable to see Jesus, unable to comprehend the gospel. Ephesians 2 says, I was dead in my sins and trespasses. As dead as Lazarus was in that tomb, I was deader still in my sins. When the gospel came, when I could not understand, God opened my mind. When my hard heart would not believe, God gave me a heart of flesh. When I couldn't walk, God brought me to himself. When I couldn't hear, God opened my ears. When I couldn't see, God opened my eyes. There's an old gospel song that says, when I could not come to him, 
he came to me. When I was dead, God gave me life. Why? Because in ages past, before there was anything that I can see in this universe, before the universe, time, space, whatever it is, was a dot on the radar, God gave me to Jesus. Perhaps that's true of you today. You remember the time and the place you were when the voice of the shepherd came ringing through your heart and your mind and your ears for the first time. You were convicted of your sin, you believed in the gospel, and you came to Jesus. There's no, no other word for this than grace. Completely undeserved, completely unmerited, unworked for, unearned. And yet Jesus comes to the heart of someone and says, you follow me. And here's a new heart to do it with. And here's new ears to do it with. And here's new eyes to see it with. And here's new life to do it with. And then you can't help with that new heart and those new eyes and those new ears and that new mind to just throw yourself at Jesus and say, yes, I will follow you. Willingly, I will follow you. Jesus calls out his own. They hear his voice. They recognize his voice. And they follow him only. And the judgment on the Pharisees is clear. They won't follow you because you're strangers to them. God did not give them to you. He gave them to me. You're of your father, the devil. And those who follow you are of the same father that you have. It's exactly what Jesus says in John 8. But then there's this wonderful invitation in verse 7. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. If anyone... Didn't you just say, Jesus, that only your sheep will come to you? Didn't you just promise that there are sheep who will hear you and there are sheep who will not understand you? How do you stand before us now and say, anyone who enters? And that's a solution. Christopher can tell you the wonderful answer I give to our kids on Wednesday nights to things that I cannot comprehend and things that I don't put together. I don't know. And I don't have to know. Anyone who comes to Jesus may enter into the door. This is the third of seven I am statements if you're keeping track by now. I am the door. Jesus says, kind of switching the metaphor up here. I, I was kind of painting myself as the shepherd. And now I'm the door. I am the one way into the flock of God. I am the one way into the pen. Not only am I the one that leads the sheep in and out, I'm the only way in to safety. The only, one in, the only way in to security. I'm the only means by which the sheep can come in and out. You should remember John 14, 6, Jesus says in another I am statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the door. I am the only door. Now this is a great offense in our day that someone would claim that we have the only way of salvation. That Jesus Christ as the Savior and faith in him is the only way that one can have a right relationship with God. There are not many ways. There are not many paths. There are not many truths. There is one life, one way, one truth, Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ only. And this is a great offense in our day because we, hurt, we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. We want everyone to be safe in what they have always thought, what they have always believed. And so presenting them with this choice... You can either believe your false gospel, you can believe your false religion, you can worship your idols, or you can turn to the only one who gives you life, which is Jesus, and they see that as offensive and bigoted and hateful. Here's what we have to realize. When we preach that message to people, that Jesus is the only way, we're preaching a message of immense grace. God doesn't owe humanity anything. 
People say there's only one way. That's not fair. No, it's not fair that there's one way. The only fair option for God would be if there's no way. And everyone goes to hell because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God says, I'm going to provide a way. So yes, Jesus is the only way, but he is a way. He is a door that God has opened when he didn't have to. He is a path that God has shown us that he didn't have to. He didn't owe it to us. We don't deserve it. We're his enemies. We're rebels against him. We hate him by nature. And yet he says, here's a way for you to come to me. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the door. I am the gate. And there's no other entrance except through me. There's no other means for salvation today, if you don't hear what I'm saying, except through Jesus Christ. No other religion, no other philosophy, no other worldview, no other system of thought. Nothing brings salvation except for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And John uses this as sort of a bookend for this little first section. It started with thieves and robbers. It ends in verse 8 with thieves and robbers. And then Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I came that they might have life. You got two paths here. The path of death or the path of life. Jesus says, I came to give them life. Then, beginning in verse 11, Jesus again says, I am the door of the, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay my life down for the sheep. This is the mission of the shepherd, but the mission comes at a high price. Jesus says, I am the shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I mean, as opposed to what? Obviously, the bad ones. But here's what it means for me to be the good shepherd. I lay my life down for the sheep. Now, this is not necessarily foretelling Jesus' death at first. It's just a statement of fact. A good, noble, worthy shepherd will lay his life down for the sheep. And we'll get back to that because Jesus does promise that. Jesus contrasts himself to hired hands. And I think in this way, he's painting these Pharisees, these religious leaders as the hired hands. They care nothing for the sheep. They've been given this kind of temporary authority and ownership over the sheep, but they don't belong to them. They didn't pay for them. They belong to God, and they certainly are not willing to die for them. In fact, at the very least sign of danger, these false shepherds will run away and cower. Why? Because they're only in it for themselves. Isaiah chapter 56, he calls them blind watchmen, dogs with no bark. Dogs with no bite who simply let the wolves and the wild beasts have at the sheep. Reminds me of churches today. Sadly, it reminds me of pastors today. Pastors in the world and our nation who claim to support the gospel of Jesus Christ, calling themselves evangelicals, but have no bark. And certainly no bite. So when those dogs, Paul calls them dogs in Philippians, the dogs of false teaching show their teeth, come after the sheep, those shepherds go running, equivocating, compromising, watering down, and just making everything so ambiguous that nobody even knows what is being talked about while the wolves have their day with the sheep. The devil roars about like a, roams about like a roaring lion waiting for someone to devour. And these false shepherds just stand idly by, wringing their hands, running away in cowardice. I'm reminded of a quote from the Reformation. A dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked and yet would remain silent. 
Our prayer in this day for our churches across this nation, across the world, as we pray for missionaries and church planners, is that God would give us pastors and shepherds and dogs with a little bark, dogs with a little bite. And when those false teachers and those uh, false shepherds come creeping into the congregation and creeping into those church plans and creeping into those missions works, that a solid, noble, worthy, good pastor will get the rod of God's correction out and go after that person. Get out of here. These sheep do not belong to you. They belong to God. And I have been given care over them. And you will have none of them. Sounds harsh, but it's the New Testament principle. Paul says, rebuke them sharply and remove them from the congregation. That God would give us courage like that. Boldness. Not to be mean, but so the sheep will be protected. So the sheep will thrive. Jesus says, finally, I am the good shepherd. I lay my life down for the sheep. A good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. But Jesus says, I am a good shepherd and I lay my life down for the sheep. I know my own and my own know me, he says. This mutual knowledge that Jesus has with the sheep. I know them, they know me. Just as I know the Father and the Father knows me. The knowledge that the shepherd has of the sheep and the sheep have of the shepherd mirrors the knowledge that God the Father shares with God the Son. Beautiful, intimate, close fellowship and relationship that's eternal, that's everlasting. And Jesus says, this knowledge that I have with my sheep flows from that knowledge that I have with my Father. And that's exactly why we're reminded of John 6. God gave him the sheep. God gives him the mission to go get the sheep. God gives him the mission to go seek the sheep, to save the sheep, to die for the sheep, to bring the sheep to himself. That's that kind of knowledge that necessarily overflows into the knowledge of the shepherd for the sheep. I know them and they know me. I lay my life down for them. The word for there is so important. It denotes sacrifice, substitution. Some faulty views of the atonement in our day. One being that Jesus dies as merely an example. Just an example of self-sacrificial love. That's all it was. Jesus died merely to conquer death. So that we don't have to worry about death anymore. That's, that's all he did. Jesus dies as a martyr for his beliefs. It's a popular one. Jesus dies just hoping that someone might be saved. What does Jesus say here? I lay my life down for the sheep. I lay my life down in place of the sheep. I lay my life down as a substitute for the sheep. I lay my life down taking the punishment on myself in place of these sheep. That's not just a good example. That's not just being martyred for his beliefs. That's not just some righteous example of love and mercy. That is the substitute shepherd coming down out of heaven, substituting himself in the place of sinners, taking God's punishment on himself for the sheep, knowing that they will come to him and they will be saved. Not one ounce of Christ's blood will be wasted. We're gonna sing it in a minute. He will have the prize for which he died. An inheritance of nations. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. I lay my life down as a substitute for the sheep. Lastly, we see the shepherd's flock in the last verses. And this carries us into our idea of missions today. Jesus said, I came to gather the lost sheep of the house of Israel. His mission was to the Jews. The gospel came to the Jews first. This is all very true. But even from the old covenant, we have this picture that there's a new covenant coming that's not just for one people or one nation or one ethnicity, but it's for all people. And that's why Jesus suddenly turns and says, and, and this must have caught the Pharisees by surprise. It, it might have also caught the disciples by surprise. 
I lay my life down for the sheep. Verse 16, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Do what now? Not just the sheep of Israel. The disciples might have been asking this. The blind man who was standing there might have been asking this. Wait a minute. I thought this was an Israel thing. I have other sheep. Notice the ownership. I have. They're mine. Notice their identity. They're sheep. This might have caused some offense. It certainly caused some surprise. We've already seen this, haven't we, in John's gospel. Jesus with the Samaritan woman. Jesus with the official son. Healing the lame man. The adulterous woman. The blind man. Maybe not Gentiles. One was a Samaritan. But certainly the outcast. The unclean in the eyes of these religious leaders. And Jesus goes to them. Worse yet, Jesus says here, I'm going to the Gentiles too. I must have all my sheep Verse 16, so there will be one flock and there will be one shepherd. Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 11, Matthew 8, sorry, after healing the the centurion servant, he said, there will come a day when people from east and west will come and eat at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This would have scandalized their minds that Gentiles, the unclean, Dogs would come sit at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they would be brought into the covenant of Israel. I mean, scandalous stuff Jesus is talking about. But here he says it again I have other sheep. They're not of this fold, but they're mine. They're my sheep. And listen to this the certainty I must bring them, and they will listen. We see here from Revelation 5 that the lamb redeems one people for God, but it is not to say one type of people. It says, out of every tribe, out of every language, out of every people, out of every nation, I will make them a kingdom and I will make them priests to my God. Ephesians 2 verses 11 through 22 talk about this division between Jew and Gentile and how Jesus Christ in his sacrifice on the cross by his blood tore down the wall of separation and made one new man in place of the two. So there are no longer two people of God, Israel and the church. There is one person, one person in Jesus Christ, one new man, the man called the church, the body of Christ, with Christ as his head, Jew, Gentile, everyone included by faith in Jesus Christ. I have other sheep. I must bring them and they will listen to my voice. Jesus here is talking about a worldwide mission. But by the time he dies and is buried and rises again, he's only been in one country. He's only been one place. And we say, how is this gonna be a worldwide mission when you've only been to Israel and Samaria and Judea, a few provinces, a few different regions? At the end, Jesus says in Matthew 28, though, you know this by heart, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. What does he say? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. In Acts 1.8, he tells us where the power comes from. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you to be my witnesses. Lastly today, I'm going to end with this. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're familiar with the Great Commission. We're familiar with Acts 1.8, receiving power and being witnesses. But what does this have to do with us? That was to the apostles, right? Jesus was talking to the disciples. What does this have to do with us today? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the mystery, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 
Yeah, the great commission was given to the apostles, to the disciples. They were promised power by the Holy Spirit. But here's the thing. It's your and my mission too. It's our great commission. Paul makes no distinction here between an apostle and a member of the church. He says the ministry of reconciliation is ours. The message of reconciliation is ours. So go and implore, literally beg people to come to Jesus and to be reconciled. And listen, in this way, in this way, we get to be the voice of the shepherd in the world. Jesus said, just as the Father sent me, just as the Father has sent me, John 20, 21, so I send you. With the message of reconciliation. Go into the world and be the voice of the shepherd. Yeah, Romans 10, 13 says, everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. But it also says they can't call if they haven't believed. They can't believe unless they hear. And they can't hear unless someone preaches it to them. Because faith comes by hearing the word of God. The Father sent me for this. This is my mission. This is my charge. But then Jesus says, the same way God sent me, I'm sending you with your mission, with your charge. Go make disciples. Be the voice of the shepherd in the world. Jesus goes on to say, I lay my life down for the sheep. No one takes it from me. I lay it down willingly. He says, I lay it down so that I may take it up again. And then there's more division, more confusion there at the end of John 10, verses 20 to 21. Who is this guy? He's a demon. He's insane. But still others, could he be the Christ? Surely no demon talks like this man does. Surely a demon can't open the eyes of the blind. Really, John 10 is the conclusion of these two chapters, chapter 9 and chapter 10, and they still don't understand division and confusion. Who is this guy? Could this be the Christ? Let me just bring this home for two groups of people in the room today. One is believers. If you're here today and you've trusted in the gospel of Jesus Christ for salvation, repenting of your sins, turning to him, you can rest in the security and the protection of your shepherd. Charles Spurgeon talks about two people that were traveling on the plains of Russia, horseback. And suddenly they find themselves being tracked and then chased by a herd of wolves. And the wolves are getting closer and closer and the, the, the horses are getting tired. The horses are running down. And soon it seems like the wolves will have all of them for supper. When suddenly they come upon a hut a humble, meager hut in the middle of the woods and immediately hop off the horses, run into the hut and slam the door behind them. And they can hear the wolves howling and crashing against the house and crashing on the roof and scratching and pawing, but they can't come in. Spurgeon says, now when a man is in Christ, he can hear, as it were, the devils howling like wolves, all fierce and hungry for him. And his own sins, like wolves, are seeking to drag him down to destruction. But he has gotten himself into Christ. And that is such a shelter that all the devils in the world, if they were to come at once, could not dislodge a single beam of that eternal refuge. Is it any wonder Paul says, who can bring a charge against God's elect? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Believers today, rest in the arms of your shepherd king who gave himself for you, who keeps you, who leads you, who called you out of darkness and into light. You are his. Rejoice in him. Unbeliever. The wolves are circling. The devils are roaming about, waiting to devour you. But you got a bigger problem than Satan, don't you? Way bigger than Satan. For on the day of judgment, it will not be Satan who condemns you, but God. 
It will be God who looks at your life, who weighs your sins against his righteous perfection, and he will say, away with me, away from me, I never knew you. Don't harden your heart as these religious leaders did. Look to Jesus and be saved. Hear the invitation of the shepherd this morning. I am the door. And if anyone enters in, he will be saved. Let's be the voice of our shepherd in the world. Believers, rest in the security of your shepherd. Unbelievers, hear the call of the shepherd this morning. Beloved Psalm 23 in the first verse says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall lack nothing. When the Lord is your shepherd, truly we lack nothing. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing a song of response. I'm going to sing with you as Pastor John has been doing. But after we sing and I give some announcements and we close the service, if you need to talk to me or anyone about what it means to have faith in Jesus Christ, what it means to enter in by that door, do not put it off today. It sounds cliche and old school evangelistic types, but look, you're not promised another second. And if you die and you stand before God, what will he say to you? Come to Jesus today and be saved. After we sing, you need to talk to me or someone, come talk. I'll be down front waiting on you to talk and pray. We're going to sing together and worship the Lord. And then I'm going to give some announcements and you come talk to me about whatever it is you need to pray for today. Our Lord and our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise that you are indeed the good shepherd. That you have sent your son Jesus to be that good shepherd for us. That in him we might have life and light. Today, God, draw people to yourself. Even as I have preached today to the outward hearts and ears of the people in this building, I ask that you by your Holy Spirit have been at their hearts, knocking, calling, and drawing them to yourself. As we sing today, Lord, remind us that we are yours, that we are your church. We cannot be defeated, and there's nothing that can come against us because we are safe in the arms of our great shepherd king, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.